Welcome, everybody, to the Live from Tomorrow podcast. I am your host, Matt Hooper. Each week, we weave together guest interviews with comedic segments to bring tomorrow vividly to life, offering a bold, humorous perspective on what's next across business, technology, politics, and entertainment. And today's show is going to be a little bit different. It's our first two-part episode, as last week's guest, Michael Zhu, will also be featured this week. There was just way too much to cover in only one episode, and our discussion, which is largely centered around the cross-border opportunities for businesses in the U.S. and China, has still got me thinking about global supremacy in the 21st century, and if there can even be such a thing. I was born one year before the Berlin Wall fell, one year before the so-called end of history. Liberal democracy, coupled with Western-style capitalism, was widely accepted by generations of Americans as the most successful, most advanced societal framework. However, as we enter the third decade of the 21st century and look around the world to see democratic norms fade, economies shrink, and technologies advance, I thought it might be a good idea to revisit why the U.S. takes such pride in liberal democracy coupled with Western-style capitalism in the first place. After all, with China now standing tall as the other dominant global superpower, there is, for the first time in my life, another example for nations to turn to. And while I can't speak to China's successes, I can and will speak to areas where the U.S. stands to improve. I love this country, and Pointing out some structural design flaws is patriotic, isn't it? We Americans tend to love democracy out loud, championing it around the world while not really practicing what we preach at home. I know, I know, we're a constitutional republic and not a direct democracy, but still, if we want to keep attracting the brightest minds, launching the most innovative products, and offering our citizens a chance at, yes, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, shouldn't everybody be represented when it comes time to make their voice heard? Which brings me to the Electoral College. I don't get it. I mean, intellectually I do, but come on. How can we keep promoting our role in the world as a beacon of democratic values when we have something so inherently anti-democratic deciding our elections? I invite you to travel back in time with me for a few minutes to March 12, 1788 to try and understand just what the heck Alexander Hamilton was thinking. Hello, I'm here. My most sincere apologies for tardiness. Oh, no, please take your time, Mr. Hamilton. It's not like we're about to start a press conference or anything. If John Jay wants to cut the jealousy crap and write a few more Federalist Papers, John Jay can cut the jealousy crap and write a few more Federalist Papers. Nobody's stopping you. But the appetizer can't complain if the entree is late. You know what I mean? Good morning! It is my understanding that you're all here today to learn about this latest essay entitled The Mode of Electing the President, published in the New York Packet just this morning. Oh, I see we have a writer from the packet here with us. Hi, yes, Thaddeus Thadmore, author of the Hither, Thither, and Yon column. This is a question for Alexander Hamilton. Of course. Uh, just a quick question. How can a uh, bastard, orphan, son of a whore... <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. Come on, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, yep, yep, I get it. Uh, but seriously, you, you've written 67 Federalist Papers before this one, uh, nearly all under the pseudonym Publius. Why make such a show of anonymity when we all know who the true authors are? 
That's a great question, Thaddeus. Thank you. And yes, you're right. Many astute observers have correctly guessed our identities, even though we'd prefer not to highlight who we were. Having attended the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia last summer, would sort of spoil the point of the essays. (laughs) Oh, there go Hamilton, Jay, and Madison again, blathering on and on about the birth of the Republic. But you can't tell who wrote which, me or Hamilton or Madison, just saying. I understand your question, Thaddeus. The pseudonym is silly. Yes. Yes, you're right, John. You can tell, particularly because I've written the most so far. Well, most isn't necessarily best, Alexander, so... Well, (laughs) look, we want to get this powerful document, the United States Constitution, ratified here in New York. Nearly 12 years after declaring our independence, this is our chance to put our governing principles down on parchment. So if all of us write under the name Publius, we think that it allows for the ideas to come to the fore and the whole thing becomes less about us. I, for one, just want to make clear that Publius was Hamilton's idea. He's used the pseudonym before, a tribute to the founding of the Roman Republic or something. John, could you not? Uh, Thank you. Just a quick follow-up. What about readers who say they enjoy some of the earlier essays but find your newer work a little boring? Boring. Well, I would tell your readers to keep turning that page because I'm just getting started. I mean, if you think Federalist number 68 is good, just wait until... He's asking about the people who don't think number 68 is good. You're a fan of number 10, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Federalist number 10 is... Well, I, I honestly don't think I'll ever read anything that powerful again. I mean... That was an essay. I agree. That's funny because some people really, uh, really don't like that one, I've heard. Some people think that this, that this one is the best one, the new one, and that number 10 sucks. To that end, will Mr. Madison be joining us this morning? No, unfortunately, couldn't make it, but I'll pass along your kind words when next I see him. Excellent. Thank you. Just some of the passages still stay with me. Madison's view that the Constitution offers a happy combination of a republic and a democracy, the great and aggregate interests being referred to, the national, the local, and particular to the state legislatures. Yes, it was all very, very elegant language. Now, are there any other questions? The two great points of difference between a democracy and a republic are, first, the delegation of the government, and the latter to a small number of citizens elected by the rest. Secondly, the greater number of citizens and greater sphere of country over which the latter may be extended. Oh, I mean, has there ever been a clearer elucidation of why republicanism staves off tyranny? In a democracy without republicanism, Madison writes that men of factious tempers of local prejudices or of sinister designs may, by intrigue, by corruption, or by other means, first obtain the suffrages and then betray the interests of the people. Yep, none of us trust the mob, it's true. Uh, Are there any other questions? Yes, hi, Thaddeus Thaddleston with the Daily Advertiser. We actually published Federalist Number 10. Oh, well, bully for you. My question is for Mr. Hamilton. Why do you write like you're running out of time? (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. Mm -hmm. Do you have a real question? I, I don't, no. Okay. I like what y'all are doing. This is fun. I see another hand up. Yes, you in the back. Hi, Thaddeus Thaddlewalk, Independent Journal. Mr. J, this question's for you. In your view, does Mr. Hamilton's latest contribution to these Federalist papers build upon Madison's masterful number 10, or does it draw us in a new Republican direction? That's a good question, Thaddeus. Well, 
This piece argues that the system presently in place for selecting presidents, introduced in Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, is better for being an indirect electoral process rather than a direct popular electoral process. Sounds like someone read my work after all. So in that sense, I'd say it builds on what comes before. But what's unique is how it accounts for something... uh, uh, Madison used to bring it up all the time. Madison, and really, this is why we love him. He's always coming up with an angle. He's uh, always outside the box with his stuff. He really is. He wisely pointed out that in less populated states, slaveholding states, fewer people means less representation. How do we include all Americans, so long as they're white, male, and landowning, in our process? Right. So, by having electors, men most capable of analyzing the qualities adapted to the station and acting under circumstances favorable to deliberation and to a judicious combination of all the reasons and inducements which were proper to govern their choice, that's a direct quote from my essay, you're welcome, It will not only spread the power of representation to less populous states, it will create a check on populist impulses, such as uh, electing a demagogue to the land's highest office. I, uh, sorry to interrupt. Uh, Does anyone here own a white and brown spotted Palomino? It's blocking the driveway. Anybody? Yeah, I'm looking for the owner of a white and brown spotted Palomino. Ugh, yes, sorry. Damn it. Uh, If I may, just to follow up there, what if a demagogue is delivered under the presidency not by the will of the people, but by the electors? And what if one day the population of the United States is so uneven from state to state that electors serve as a cancellation of the popular vote rather than a check on the popular vote's power? Well, I don't. I mean, I know that we're founding a country here, and so imagination is welcome, but we don't need to start playing the what-if game. Wouldn't it make more sense to opt for a truly representative democracy, a legitimately popular process where the winner of the most votes won the presidency? (laughs) Mr. Saddlewalk, might I refer you to another paragraph in my essay? Talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may alone suffice to elevate a man to the first honors in a single state, but it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the whole union, or of so considerable a portion of it as would be necessary to make him a successful candidate for the distinguished office of President of the United States. Oh, okay. You're making it sound, however, like this electoral college is a feature, not a bug. This is something that can really hurt the country in the long run, could it not? If the will of the majority is not represented? Regardless of what other talents and different kind of merit a candidate has, I can foresee this hurting American democratic credibility on the world stage and leading to real cultural erosion within these United States as well, where citizens turn on one another, not believing the outcome of an election, say, or feeling that their own government works against them. Mr. Thattlebach, if in 12 score and four years you're right and this new nation still stands, then uh, sure, yeah, we can reconsider this uh, bogus arbitrary rule. But for now, can we not all just stand back and appreciate my essay? Well, I, uh, sorry, it's me again. Hey, hey everybody. Is anyone here the owner of a gray and black uh, Narragansett Pacer? It is relieving itself into the quarry on the far edge of the property, so that's no good. It's a gray and black Narragansett pacer. Pooping. Live from tomorrow, we'll return after a short break. This is an especially confusing and trying time here in the U.S. Political and cultural divisions run deep. Political and cultural divisions that have an awful lot to do with disparities in education, in wealth, and population density, 
In fact, this population density issue is why the Electoral College plays as important a role in our society as it does. Why Federalist Number 68 is so important to revisit at this very moment, much as we did in the opening segment. But all this division also leaves me wondering if we are still capable of coming together to complete big projects, to tackle the future, to build. Innovation ecosystems, where I've spent much of my career, comprised of startups, corporates, accelerators, and venture capital funds, just to name a few players, well, many of them began here in the U.S. to build. And so it was interesting when, during the second part of my conversation with Michael Zhu, founder and managing partner at Akathon Capital, I learned that the very same ingredients used to build a thriving ecosystem here in the States are being employed in China, a country that has built more buildings, businesses, a radically transformed economy, faster and more quickly than any other in the 21st century. Here is a clip from that conversation where we talked about actually working to define the key players in an innovation ecosystem. My follow-up there is you have interchangeably sp- spoken just now about startups and corporate innovation teams. Um, that's something I also find myself doing because it's all sort of one large ecosystem, right? These are the different players in that ecosystem. But what is the difference in China between corporate innovation teams and startup teams beyond size and scale and financing? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so uh, to be honest with you, I, I wish <laughs> it was the uh, the situations actually we talk about, um, you know, five or six years ago in China, uh, but it was not. Um, so, uh, you know, 14, 2014, it was just a beginning point of uh, entrepreneurship in a startups e- ecosystem growing in China. So there are much more corporations that in China did not realize uh, there's an urgency uh, for embracing the innovation technology, um, you know, or disruptive innovation inside of a corporates that that much, um, until a few years later, um, I will say corporate innovation in China starts with um, you know the international foreign corporations like uh, you know Airbus um, or uh, Merker uh, or some others that are doing in- innovation uh, hubs or innovation programs that in China are. Um, their purpose was to uh, really dig it out more, you know, the fundamental or, or innovative startups start in China are doing innovative stuffs um, that they can work with their international or foreign companies to, to drive innovation inside of uh, corporates. Because when we talk about corporate innovation, they're uh, fundamentally different from if you want to try it or you want to digitally transform entirely from your inside out, right? Um, and uh, if you want to just try it, uh, there are a lot of different approach, like you can do sandbox, you can do hackathon, you can do a lot of uh, short-term programs uh, that allow corporates to see what's going on there and then just get a taste of what's going on and then can see how it can uh, be engaged with the startups. Um, that's where actually uh, the second phase, a lot of uh, big corporates uh, that from China, that's our, most of them are state-owned. Um, and then trying to do this over uh, the corporate innovation program. Um, I, I would say that majority of uh, private companies are still struggling. Um, the main reason was um, fundamentally this is long term, meaning if you want to transform your business or innovate, bring innovation inside of corporates, that doesn't happen right away um, by engaging with the startups. And uh, it's not like uh, we were started, we, we work with the startups and, and we immediately see the big returns and uh, profits going on, right? Um, it probably will take 99% of failure until you see the 1% of a success. If so much of this sounds familiar, accelerators, sandboxes, etc., it is. 
The difference is that this is happening against a backdrop of historic economic growth in China, a form of capitalism that is state-managed, unlike what we practice here in the U.S. Michael offered some insight into how the current economic conditions in China enable their innovation ecosystem. Um, and we're talking in generally uh, market opportunities that were, were are what I see was the GDP per capita um, is growing from a few hundred dollars to um, $8,000 uh, at the time. Um, so we see there's a big jump uh, that are Chinese uh, looking for innovation, looking for uh, great products and great services um, rather than just a roof over the head. Um, and then, you know, when we have that, uh, you know, GB, GDP per capita, um, then we normally China fall into a middle income trap. Uh, where- well, would you mind defining for anyone who's unfamiliar with the middle income trap? Because I think we can understand the parallels between the co-working culture, the the early stage uh, startup culture that you're seeing in both China and the U.S. But this is a trap. I, I guess just dive a little further into that, if you don't mind, because these are some things that are unique to the burgeoning Chinese ecosystem that we haven't experienced in the same way in the U.S. Absolutely. Uh, if if we put it simply um, as a business owner or as a person that are understanding the middle income trap is uh, what we used to grow uh, the economy in China uh, is probably no longer that active or no longer that uh, effective. Uh, meaning, um, in China, particularly, we we are proud as being made in China for always. Uh, so we're a hub of a manufacturing from you know the hub. Uh, but when we have the middle income trap, uh, that aggressive you know sort of a growing uh, growth strategy potentially won't work in the future. Um, so that will uh, limit the growth of a country and a nation, national wide uh, to be able to excel in the future. So uh, that's where a lot of countries like, you know, Singapore, Japan um, in, a, uh, in the 90s and I mean, in the 70s are falling into the middle income trap as their GDP per capita grow to a certain level. Um, because of like people when, when they're purchasing power growing um, and then they're, they have more disposable income um, they're no longer looking for basic needs and they're going above those basic needs and looking for, you know, good products, good services, as well as uh, some technology that can be adopted. Given China's massive explosion in growth, I wanted to know if other nations could, should, or would embrace a state-managed form of capitalism. That's that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say China's, uh, I would say China's, you know, success is truly unique. Um, and, um, uh, you know, China's growth um, success is mainly because of, uh, you know, uh, decentralized from, uh, you know, the uh, be- be- before the 1978 um, and uh, after the 1978, because we truly gradually open up. Um, and then uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, private sectors are playing very important role in in the in the China economy, including my my own family business, where um, you know that was truly state-owned company, and then according to a policy, we transfer to uh, transform to a private sector. Um, there are a lot of uh, private sectors on that um, that are that are taking that approach. And um, uh, back to your points, now I think. Um, you know, different governments has a different system to manage a country. Um, uh, and then we see uh, some of the governments that are play very um, active role on supporting, you know, private sectors and some of them really taking largely on the state owned. 
Um, I think China's success is between, um, and then but gradually we're opening up the market. So hopefully we'll see a um, a larger uh, collaborations that uh, around the world that China and the U.S. and other countries can collaborate in some other degree. My conversation with Michael in both this episode and in the previous episode inspired me to consider what I've taken for granted in the U.S. My own views on business, on the nature of cross-border collaboration, for which Michael is such a strong proponent. But unlike in last week's episode, I no longer found myself thinking about the nature of the U.S.-China relationship in the future. Instead, I thought back to the 1790s, to a pivotal moment in the history of American innovation. And we'll take a look back into that past after this short break. So as I record this, the president of the United States is still contesting an election that he lost. What does this say about our status as a democracy? I don't know about you, but when I think about the U.S.-China relationship and how this relationship has changed the position of the U.S. on the world stage, I tend to think about how functional a democracy we really are. And it's not just about the Electoral College, which we explored at the beginning of the episode. It's about the peaceful transition of power that we're being denied right now. This may in fact be the original American innovation, first practiced at the end of George Washington's presidency. And I got to thinking what I might say if I had the chance to interview him. Welcome back to Live From Tomorrow, coming at you live from, well, uh, from today, actually. This is a scene that's just my imagination, folks. (laughs) And as a concerned citizen, As someone who is both worried about the fraying of democratic norms here at home and who also desperately wants to ensure that the United States open ourselves up to the world again in a repudiation of these last four years, I'm thrilled to welcome to the show General, Statesman, the face of the $1 bill, and former president of these United States, Mr. George Washington. Thank you for being with us, sir. Hey, thanks for having me back, Matt. As ever, today's episode is brought to you by Founder Dating, the only app for entrepreneurs looking for a love connection with the founding fathers of these United States. Founder Dating, swipe right like your liberty depends on it. Uh, George, or, uh, gosh, sorry, Mr. Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a common enough mistake. Uh, each week, I, I have the privilege of sitting down to chat with various innovators, innovators in business and the arts and so on. However, there are fewer decisions as innovative, I'd wager, than yours in the summer and fall of 1796, when you did not run for a third term as president, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 20 years uh, out from declaring independence from Britain, nine from the creation of the U.S. Constitution, and 16 years after the revolution, you decided not to remain in power, but rather to cede it. And the farewell address you gave has gained quite the reputation over the past two and a quarter centuries. Right. Well, actually, I I started a version of that address as early as 1792. Well, this is my point. You seem to be, almost from the very beginning of your presidency, trying to, if not relinquish power, then at least transition peacefully. You knew that there was real danger in the idea of a sitting president not giving up power. Yeah, well, we were, as you said, barely finished with the war for our independence. So if I were to stay in power in perpetuity, would that make me so different than King George? I mean, really. I'd be an immovable head of state, also named George. Ridiculous. So why do you think President Trump has been so weary of committing to a peaceful transition of power? This feels like a very, maybe the American idea. We elect our leaders. The will of the people decides. We don't bow our heads to any crown. Absolutely. Wigs, not crowns. That was a suggestion I made for our second term campaign slogan. Sorry? Because I wore a wig, not a crown. 
Uh. Yeah, I'm not saying it was a good slogan. Love a good wig, though. Love. Are you? Yeah, I'm fine. I just, I got something stuck in my wooden teeth is all. <laughs> though in my day, we just said teeth. If we can take a look at your address for a moment, there's a constant push-pull between duty and your wish to retire. And I quote, In looking forward to the moment, which is intended to terminate the career of my public life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude, which I owe to my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me. What was it exactly that kept calling you back to public life? Or- a, sen- a sense of duty, for sure. You're right about that. Also, Jefferson and Hamilton were fighting, you know, so often. And Hamilton was, I guess today you'd call him a proponent of big government, while Jefferson championed more power at the state level. I worried that if I stepped aside too soon, the new republic would dissolve entirely. They would just fight to the death. Interesting. You have to remember now, democracy requires constant care. It's not a fixed static thing. And so all the risks you're worried about today were risks we too considered in the earliest days of the nation. But the reasons for this president's reluctance to commit to a peaceful transition of power, I can't weigh in on that entirely. I I haven't been following the news too closely this week. Martha and I have been binging the Queen's Gambit. Oh, how is it? It's compelling. I mean, it's it's. I mean, chess. <laughs> Who knew? I'd recommend it. I, I can't tell a lie. <laughs> nice. The reason for this president's reluctance to commit to a peaceful transition of power doesn't feel like it's coming from a healthy place. He doesn't want to lose. I get it. Who does? But I stayed in power for fear of the country being torn apart. He threatens to stay so that he can continue to tear the country apart. But couldn't he argue that by staying, he's also keeping the country from... I don't particularly care about his arguments. He's tyrannical. I would know. I spend a lot of my career fighting tyrants. Another passage from your farewell address I'd like to cover is this one. Interwoven as is the love of liberty with every ligament of your hearts, no recommendation of mine is necessary to fortify or confirm the attachment. I love that. You're treating Americans like adults. You're saying, you know, part of this pact of keeping America alive lies with you. Well, shouldn't the love of liberty be interwoven with every ligament of our hearts? We spend so much time talking about presidents, handing over power to presidents, obsessing over presidents, but the power of this country should lie in the hands of its citizens. So yes, I I decided to get out of the way and not to rule forever. So yes, I reminded every American of the power and importance of self-government on my way out the door. I've been thinking a lot about China recently, given another guest we've had on the show, as well as China's role as the other major global superpower. There are so many brilliant business thinkers in each of our countries and so many opportunities to work together as a result. But I fear that with tensions running so high, we'll not only miss the chance to collaborate, we'll let our competition turn into something ugly, something bad. Yes, yes, I can see that. And listen, I'm an isolationist. I mean, it's just the nature of the era I was born into. Sure. However, that doesn't mean I support stupid competition. Healthy competition, sure. Stupid competition, eh, not so much. You'd have to be really closed off to the world and sort of a like a paranoid maniac to want to close the door on the opportunity to work with the best and the brightest from all over the world. You'd have to be like John Adams. <laughs> You'd have to, <clears throat> you, but, but John was, but John was, twas before your time. <laughs> hmm. uh, near the end of your address, you said, in offering to you, my countrymen, these counsels of an old and affectionate friend, I dare not hope they will make the strong and lasting impression I could wish. That they will control the usual current of the passions, 
or prevent our nation from running the course which has hitherto marked the destiny of nations. Do you think that we're at a turning point? Do you think that we fulfill the destiny of nations or that we have been prevented from running the course? We are so divided right now, and I can't remember this much discussion about the eroding of democratic norms, well, ever. You're right to be concerned, okay? But let me just remind your listeners of something very important, and and I'm going to speak slowly so that everyone can take it in, okay? I left office because we are not a monarchy. Right. American presidents work for the American people. It's plain and simple. You modern Americans spend so much time glorifying leaders or vilifying leaders. How about don't, don't put so much weight on the shoulders of your leaders, huh? Not a bad idea. Perhaps a democratic republic shouldn't be overrun with hero worship or hero flogging. I mean, I own slaves, okay? I'm not a great guy. Nope. Well, I think how much has been named after me. I know, it's weird. Bottom line, the president is just a person. Hopefully a smart and experienced person, someone with a background in, well, anything other than bankruptcy and reality television. And he or she is hired by you, the voter. Hmm. Well, when you put it so simply- Ah, shit. My tooth. What's wrong? Jolly Rancher. Eh, broken incisor I made for myself from Driftwood. It is often said that the U.S. is the world's oldest democracy. But you wouldn't move into the oldest house on the block, would you? Some things need a fixer-upper. A reboot. And, perhaps unsurprisingly, at the end of two episodes that got me thinking all about the U.S.-China relationship, I came away wondering more about the nature of societies to reboot than ever before. About where and how America, this contradictory, messy, ultimately democratic, painfully slow ship, can improve and stay the course. Headed for the horizon.
wake up, take a deep breath at the lookout, see the world. This weathered ship, she just needs a few tweaks. We can regroup at the dock, build a boat of sure stock, and watch the good ship America sailing on to join the fleet. Come aboard the good ship America, sailing onward with the fleet. That's our show, everybody. Thank you to our guest for the second week in a row for the second half of our conversation, Michael Zhu. Thank you to our cast, Max Azulay, Kelly Quinn, Anne Veal, Matthew Walters-Bowens, and Raleigh Williams. Our score is composed by Ben Easton. The song in this week's episode, Good Ship America, was written by Ben Easton, sung by Matthew Walters-Bowens with musical accompaniment from Ben Easton and Trevor Brown and mixed by Jim Bloom. I am your writer and host, Matt Hooper, and I want to thank all of you for listening. We'll catch you all next week. Thanks, folks.